Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. It's all about emotion, our full range of emotions. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Aaron Walter. Aaron is the Vice President of Design Publishing at Envision. Drawing upon 15 years of experience running product teams and teaching design to help companies enact design best practices. Aaron founded the UX practice at MailChimp. He is the co-host of the Webby-nominated podcast Design Better and the author of Designing for Emotion, which recently released its second edition. Aaron and I discuss his journey from studying art at the University of Iowa to becoming a design practitioner, a design educator, and author. We explore the importance and power of emotion in design. We talk about the problems in the design space when we ignore emotion, including the weaponization of platforms and unintended consequences. It was an honor having Aaron on the podcast. I'd like to thank him for joining me. I hope you enjoy the episode. Aaron, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Iowa Idea podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us if you don't mind, could you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I, I got to say, it feels like being home here on, on the Iowa Idea podcast, uh, being uh, homegrown in Iowa. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm Aaron Walter, and I'm a writer. I'm a designer. Um, I do a bit of public speaking, and uh, I do a lot of different things in the world. So... Uh, Digging in a little bit about your Iowa background, do you mind just a little bit talking about your Iowa connection? Yeah, I was born in uh, born in Iowa, grew up in small town and uh, lived there for a number of years, moved away for a little while to Nebraska, to Missouri, and then back to Iowa and uh, ended up landing in Creston, Iowa, which is a town of like 8,000 people. Um, it's a pretty small town. It's uh, pretty typical Iowa. Um, once was a train town, became a factory town, became a little bit of a shell of a town, to be honest, uh, since a lot of things closed. But uh, And my parents live in Winterset these days, just outside of Des Moines. Um, but yeah, growing up in Iowa, um, uh, my, my, my parents grew up uh, in Iowa as well. So, you know, all my family is, is still there. And you did your undergrad at the University of Iowa, is that right? I did. One of the finest uh, educational institutions in the United States. I love the University of Iowa. Uh, such a great experience. I just I learned a ton from that school. Um, I did my BFA uh, in painting and drawing there. And um, those who don't know about the art program there, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, the Fluxus movement there's, has a, a, a close connection, Dada, uh, Dadaism. And uh, yeah, where I had my thesis show, Jackson Pollock used to teach. So um, it's a pretty incredible place. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a University of Iowa is building a new art museum. Uh, after the flood of uh, 2008, yeah. uh, and it was 
the connection to the Pollock is that the University of Iowa has a, a large Pollock, uh, and the they could, yeah, they couldn't get it insured uh, if they stayed in the, that same building. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not just that, but uh, my my understanding too is that part of the design that went into the new museum, which is is under construction now, is to be able to move something like a, a large Pollock around a little bit more easily than the old uh, yeah. art museum. Yeah. And that space was sunken in too. So it makes it kind of a fishbowl right. uh, collecting water where you don't want it. Yes. Yeah. And a connection the, uh, the art and art history program at the university of Iowa, that's actually where uh, the Iowa idea started to take root. So it was conceptually, it was through university leadership, but it was actually in the uh, school of art and art history where they started bringing mm-hmm. the outside collaborators in and, and worked mm-hmm. with, with students. And then I think, you know, more people probably know, you know, some of the extensions of the MFA degree itself, and then the mm. the workshop. But it's a, it was actually in the uh, in the art department where everything started. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So if we if we dig in a little bit, so you you wear many hats, uh, and I I know you you do you you focus on design itself. You do a I lot do. of work in design education, and mm-hmm. then as a speaker and writer. Uh, are there any of those hats you want to talk about first? Yeah, maybe I could just uh, stitch a couple things together for listeners. Um, you know, people's careers follow unexpected pathways. Um, you know, I started my my education at the University of Iowa um, studying painting and then went on to graduate school in Philadelphia and realized that, you know, I probably can't change the world with the painting, but I could with the web. And I was kind of experimenting with technology in my art at the time. So long story short, I ended up shortly after graduate school, um, working in Philadelphia, teaching um, uh, and, and doing a lot of agency work. So I got into, went from uh, fine art to design. And through my, my teaching process, ended up starting to write books um, the books that were missing from my courses about this intersection of technology and design. Um, and that was unexpected. No one in my family ever wrote a book. I didn't really know anyone who had written a book. So that was a, that was new territory for me. And that also led me to, um, you know, a lot of experimentation with design and, and, um, doing design professionally and teaching it, um, led me to uh, joining a company in Atlanta uh, when it was very young, a company called MailChimp, um, which is now a very big company and uh, 65% of all email marketing goes through MailChimp these days. But I was the fourth person hired. I started the design team there um, and grew that from, uh, you know, when I joined, I think there were four or five of us. And then uh, when I left, there were about 550 and I think they're over, I don't know, 1200 or something like that now. Um, and these days, you know, from, from my work there, my experimentation with product design, leading product teams, um, started writing more, writing a, a book called Designing for Emotion. And those experiments at MailChimp led to that book. Um, and that came to a lot of public speaking and so forth. So these days I, I do um, a lot, uh, a lot in the design education space. It's sort of like my career came full circle. Of, um, I was uh, teaching, and then I was a practitioner of design, and I learned a lot of those things. Um, and now I am teaching people about those practices um, again uh, globally through a, a company called Envision, which is a distributed company in uh, about twenty-seven countries. Thanks. 
And uh, one of the, I want to I want to dig into your 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 latest book is a second edition of uh, uh, Designing for Emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the I, I want to tell like confessional not not that you're you're a therapist for me, but one of the struggles I have as a designer is I find writing super daunting uh, yeah. when thinking about a book because as a design like the best way to present your work and feeling like getting judged on on different levels where. Like writing a blog post or writing a, uh, you know, something that to me isn't challenging, but uh, was it hard for you thinking about how people are going to react or respond to to the book? Um, I think it's really hard. Um, I I once heard an interview with Annie Lennox, lead singer of the Eurythmics, and she was talking about what it's like for her to sing. And she said, it's really painful. It hurts and it, it takes a lot of warm up. But she once saw Aretha Franklin sing and Aretha Franklin could just like, she has the full range of her voice and her vocal power at her disposal at any minute. Uh, she doesn't require that, that wind up. She could wake up first thing in the morning and just, you know, belt out an amazing aria. I feel more like the Annie Lennox than Aretha Franklin yeah. uh, when it comes to writing that, you know, I find writing to be very challenging. Um, I find that writing is a thinking process for me where I kind of know the things that I want to say and I outline it to, to give myself some structure and try to find the, the narrative arc. But um, I'll be honest, there, a lot of times I don't really know what it is that I have to, all of what I have to say until I start writing and I have an editor who pushes back and says, yeah, this is not very good. You actually, we need to reframe this, rethink this. And that happened with this book. I got halfway through thought I had it buttoned up and the editor said, now uh, back to the drawing board. And uh, it was another six months of work. So let me, let me talk to you about the emotional side for you on that, because uh, in broad strokes, I feel like, you know, one of the most powerful things that we can do in design is good, healthy critique, mm. but some, sometimes it still hurts, right? When, yeah. uh, so, so how is that in that collaboration process with an editor? Cause they're wearing their editor hat and, you know, if we assume positive intent, they're trying to help, but how does it, how does it feel when you're getting some of that pushback that it's not as good as they think it could be? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think it's always tough to get, um, critical feedback. Um, and the thing that I learned from art school is when you're, you're giving, giving or receiving critical feedback, it's best to try to make it objective and separate the work from the person. Um, in fact, that's, that's even language we used. We would say the work needs to expand or advance in some way. Not like, hey, your work is terrible. Right. Because that's about the person, the individual. It's not about the output. Because the individual is capable of creating so much more and exploring in new directions that are unanticipated. And we don't want to stymie that. We don't want to stifle their creativity. Um, so getting that feedback from um, editors... I think, you know, when you have someone who you trust, um, an editor whom you trust, the editor I worked with on this book, uh, we hadn't worked together in the past, but um, my publisher of Book Apart, they are particular. They, you know, there is a reason why I wanted to publish with them is because they've got high standards. And I was just going to say demanding standards or exacting standards is, is very, how you perceive their brand. Yep. Very, very demanding and exacting standards. And so... Um, I love that because um, it forces me to not only do my best, 
but to find what's better than my best. And that was essentially what my editor was saying when she said, let's go back to the drawing board was that, you know, there's, there's more that I could do here. And I feel better about what I'm able to produce because I've been pushed really hard. That's yeah, that's great. I mean, and like almost using some athletic kind of uh, metaphors, but just a strong demanding coach that still has your best interests at heart, but it's going to, yeah. going to push you. Yeah. I think the military takes that philosophy, right? Like <laughs> we'll push you beyond the limits you think you have. So your, your book, you're uh, such an important topic, right? Especially when we think about design and human centered design is emotion and that, uh, you know, from a, I do a lot of work in the design and brand space and, and feel that uh, we're, we're not rational creatures. We're rationalizing creatures that will make mm-hmm. a lot of emotional decisions and then try to, to rationalize it. And, and also the time that we're talking about in your arc, right, from early web, right, where there mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of consider. It was how do we just either make this thing easier or actually how, what does this mode or form mean That's to right. getting so sophisticated? And I re- so I really appreciate your work. In, in the emotional space, really curious though, what prompted you from kind of 2011 to, to uh, 2020 in needing a second edition? Yeah, so here's what I've um, seen over the past 20 years um, in, in this space, 20 plus, I guess. Um, um, we started the web with a revolutionary mindset of, we could create a better world. We could connect people. Um, we could, you know, make some really amazing businesses and just rethink how so much of life operates through this platform of the web. Um, everyone would have access to a lot of information. It could advance us intellectually. Um, so, so many good utopian ideals for what we were trying to create. And right. It, sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, I remember that was my, like, and part of it was just maybe how young I, it was utopian though. Yeah. Right? It and was utopian. We weren't going to do any damage. We were just making the world a better place. Right. That's right. And um, we had such great intentions. And I, I think, you know, if we look at history, all revolutions start this way with high ideals um, they want to bring a lot of people into those ideas and they want to build that together. And at some point there's a reckoning that it doesn't quite pan out the way um, that it was intended. Doesn't mean that that revolution and those ideals weren't good and worthwhile. It just means that there's like in the maturation cycle of a revolution, there's like, um, uh, a violent introduction of of a new way of seeing the world, and then um, at some point the pendulum swings the other way, and there's kind of a violent reckoning of uh, the genie's out of the bottle, and how do we how do we resolve this? That's really what happened. So in in the first edition of Designing for Emotion, the problem in in our design space that I saw was that we were designing very functional, reliable products, prod, uh, you know, websites, things, things for us to use. Um, and the, the highest bar for us was let's make something usable that right. I could actually use it to do a thing. I saw that at the time in 2010, 2011, as like a chef saying, you know what, I'm going to open a restaurant and I'm going to make edible food. The food's going to be edible. Anyone could eat that and they'll get some nutritional value from it. 
that's not a culinary experience. That's not profound. It's not like changing my view of, of what it means to eat food and challenging my palate. Um, so I was, was trying to get the design community to think um, beyond that and let's design for delight. That was the mantra of the time. Let's make something that feels pleasurable and profound and unique um, and, and, you know, make a brand or a product stand out in the market. Um, fast forward to today, um, as we're recording, we're in the midst of a, a global pandemic, um, broad social, uh, global uh, social up upheaval um, on, on multiple levels. And um, we're realizing, uh, realizing is not the right word. We are reckoning with the brute reality that our world, it, there's, there's so much inequity in our world. And um, I think this pandemic is basically an, an amplifier for a lot of what has already been present for, for so long. Right. And add to that, we, we see platforms um, being uh, weaponized against us, um, platforms that we've built with our technologies and our design, all the things we've learned at the beginning of this revolution um, used to create disinformation, to influence our elections, to, um, to create, you know, to exclude people, create a lot of damage. We didn't anticipate that when we created all of these systems and technologies. Um, and now when I think about the idea of design, um, the intersection of design and psychology, designing for emotion. Um, it's, it's not about design for delight. That's very single dimensional. It, it's designed for emotion, our full range of emotions of who we are as human beings that uh, we bring uh, a lot to the things that we interact with in the world. And if we're great designers, if we're designers with good intent, and not just with good intent, but with intent that matches up to positive outcomes, that's the gap I think that was missing in that first decade of the 21st century is we had great intention, but it wasn't necessarily well connected to the outcomes uh, and the communities that it, it um, impacted. Um, now uh, with designing for emotion, I want us to think, uh, I want us to bridge that gap. And I want us to think about designing inclusively. I want us to think about designing for mistrust uh, how do you design a, a, a dashboard for a 401k system um, that, you know, might work more effectively and, and um, encourage great behavior when you've got a huge economic downturn? You know, you, you log in and you look at it and you think, wow, I need to dump all my holdings because this thing's tanking. And that's the worst thing you could do right now. That, that will destroy the rest of your life if you dump all of your holdings. Uh, because ultimately the, the market's, March up and to the right if we look at the longer view. So right. design has the power to, to make good decisions and connect our good intentions to, to good impact. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, really, I really appreciate that. And even going back to your, your, your chef metaphor, uh, I, I hadn't heard that before, but I really do like that about the restaurant and you, you get them there and hey, here's something edible, right? But that's, yeah. we were at like, it was like, like let's make this, this usable and useful, right? Those were the, the initial elements. And I, I think right. that intent was, um, I think now for me, it's the work's never done, right? That you can iterate and improve. But I, I feel like maybe back in the day, for me, it was, it seemed like the finish line was, was yeah, yep, see, they, they can click or it's mm -hmm. easier to click or 
we optimize the shopping cart, right? But it really, yeah. there, there weren't ethical dis- discussions and there weren't emotional discussions. So I really yeah. appreciate too, you're talking about the, the particular need for uh, empathy and inclusion. Yeah. If it's all right with you, I'd like to dig in on a couple, a couple elements from the, the latest version of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, one, one of the things too, is that, that I really like is, um, you also brought in some of the business elements as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you were, you were talking about, uh, MVPs and yeah. in general, I see a lot of, so my, my take and feel free to critique or push back too. But I, I think sometimes on MVP, uh, my experience, it, it tends to be more of uh, minimal rather than minimum, right? What yeah. are the minimum requirements? Even going back to kind of yeah. uh, your investment, we, we don't have minimal balances. We have minimum balances that need to be maintained, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see that as, as one, one issue, but also I feel like in many ways we've over-indexed on speed rather than like the accuracy and the context on which yeah. the, the user is encountering this experience. And See, like the way that you've talked about emotion it, to run through kind of from the, the functional to the usable, right? All the way, you, you have to think about this at many different levels. Yeah. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, absolutely. So in, in the book, I talk about um, this idea of a hierarchy of needs, which, um, you know, many in the design space and uh, psychology space, we're well familiar with the idea of uh, Abram Maslow's, um, uh, mid 20th century model of the hierarchy of needs of what humans need to survive and thrive. And, um, I take a stab at trying to translate that into a design process so we can think about, you know, functionality, reliability, usability, and then this emotional engagement at the top. Um, and the idea of an MVP, a minimum viable prod, uh, product, which is typical of any startup or even an established company who's trying to launch a new product to market, you kind of want to know, like, is this, is this worthwhile? Is this worth investing in? Um, is this a good product market fit that the market actually wants what this product offers? And so you make a, the smallest investment you can it's so like if you're in Vegas, you would put one chip down on the roulette table. You wouldn't put 50 chips down on that, that square, right? You want to like see if it's going to hit and then uh, expand your bet. If, if that's the way the, the roulette right. table worked, right. which it yeah. doesn't. Um, and traditionally, or, or unfortunately, what, what happens with a lot of teams working on new products is they think, well, let's just make this let's build out the functionality quickly. You can log in, uh, you can do a transaction, you can, uh, you know, add some things to your account, some basic things. The problem is, is that um, it doesn't, um, the functionality doesn't necessarily map to a person's mental model of like, this is the problem that I have, what I want to solve. Um, and furthermore, it might not feel good to use it. It might not feel clear uh, so that that usability, and it might not feel like, oh, I want to go back. That was good. I, uh, I feel good about what I was able to achieve with that product. And that makes me want to tell other people like, this thing was awesome. And anyone who's been involved in branding, um, and even if you haven't, like uh, you, you probably know this inherently as well. First impressions are really important. First impressions when we meet other human beings shape 
uh, our, our perceptions of who they are. Um, think about when you download an app on your phone and you use it and it's not very good. And so you delete it. How often have you gone back to the app store, search for that again, six months, a year later to grab it and give another shot? The percentage is very, very, very low. It's probably sub 1%. And so that means that first impression for a business to be successful with a new product, it probably needs to transcend functionality. It probably needs to transcend uh, reliability and usability and actually be emotionally engaging as well. Doesn't mean that it should take six months to produce an MVP instead of six weeks. Uh, We can still move quickly. Uh, there's a, a, a gentleman in Australia, his name's Jesse, and I'm blanking on his last name, uh, who, who deserves credit, but uh, he's, he's cited in the book in, in the final chapter. So instead of drawing that pyramid, the, the hierarchy of needs, and thinking about an MVP starting from the first layer of functionality, that that's what you build first, he drew a cross-section from the top of the pyramid down to the bottom, but just a thin slice that... To, to, to give clarity to uh, all of these, these small teams, these agile teams who are building um, MVPs, that we need to think about each layer, each step of the way. We can still limit the scope of the thing that we're trying to create so we can make that safe bet on the roulette table. But we do have to think about all of those things because that first impression is so key. If we don't get that right, people aren't coming back. Thanks. Yeah, because uh, one of the one of the things that I was thinking about too uh, with that is from a customer experience space is seeing a power in empathy and competence. It's not just enough to be empathetic, but you have you have to you have to exude competence. Like this thing will work. This will help you. And I, and I, so I can see that approach too. That you know the functionality, reliability, usability. That all the way through, it's like from a brand, we're here to help you. We can help you accomplish your task uh, rather than like some of the, I don't even know how this works, <laughs> right? And you abandon it. Yeah. Uh, from an emotion uh, perspective too, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about with with your book is also, and maybe a little bit of evolution that we've seen in our times, uh, specifically with web and, and application design, but also the notion of anti-patterns and dark patterns. Like, mm-hmm early in my career, I wouldn't even have thought of dark patterns, right? And it was mm-hmm. anti-patterns that it's just, okay, that was bad design. We didn't think through it. But then, then we see, we would see an, uh, an era of dark patterns where it was, you know, getting in the way or, mm-hmm. or, you know, but, but now we see dark patterns or they're pervasive. They're we everywhere. don't even see them maybe that yeah. they're invisible we dark just, patterns. Like you said, the weaponizing. Part of our life. Yep. Yeah. Um, let me give you an example of a dark yeah. pattern that everyone here knows. Um, have you ever gotten to the end of Instagram's feed? There's no end, right? It just goes forever. It's like, it will take as much of your life as you will give it. Right. Um, watch a Netflix movie, TV show. What happens at the end? It starts a new one. And that led to language called binge watching. Yep. Because it will take as much as we give it. Um, these are just two small examples. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of our, our platforms are full of this stuff. And, you know, there's good utility to this stuff too. There are times where I consciously do want to uh, work through all of uh, a, a new season of my favorite show. Um, or I've got time to kill. I'm waiting for an airplane. I don't have work to do. Um, 
I'm just going to scroll through Instagram. I was going to say then an infinite scroll can be your friend because you can just keep going for a while. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, kind of related to ethics. Uh, a couple of years ago at the Information Architecture Conference, uh, Kim Goodwin had a... Um, uh, one one of her she, she does so many great talks. But she had a a great yeah. talk on on ethics and you know kind of described where we're at in the digital space as the largest kind of social science experiment, and there's no IRB right, governing because do do some of those experiences like you just described do they need to be sticky right why is, is that is that in the user's best interest so mm-hmm. uh, I really appreciate you talking about those those patterns as as examples and. It's not a bad, it's a dark pattern, but it's not like a, we didn't trick you into clicking anything. We almost just did it for you. Yeah. You just, you're there, you're participating. Um, and, you know, it's also on us to reflect, is, is this, is this uh, worth investing my life in? I appreciate that Apple now has screen time and tells you every week by default, here's how much time you're spending on your phone and here's where. And that's enlightening. That's at least some reflection. Here's a mirror of yourself and how you invest your time. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I know some successful people and I often am curious, like, what leads to success? And they say things like, I don't watch TV or, you know, I don't get lost on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. Um, uh, those, are, those are a couple yeah. examples. But where we put our attention um, uh, greatly shapes our behavior. And so we need to be miserly with our uh, uh, attention and not let the people who are designing products to um, capture, cultivate and capture our attention. We should not let them uh, drive the ship. Thank you. Another, another topic in the book that I found really interesting and I think it fits with, you know, even tying back to the, the original Iowa idea and uh, art, but you, you call out the arts and crafts movement and Mm -hmm. also speak to a spirit of generosity in that it's, it, the way I'm taking, you know, that it can live beyond you or that you're giving things to people that you might not ever see. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? I thought it was powerful and I know I'm not doing it justice right now. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I really love history and I love to find um, Ken Burns uh, describes history not as repeating itself, but as echoing. And I do see echoes in history of things that have happened before humans who have encountered common um, circumstances or similar circumstances and how that played out. I mean, this has been an interesting year as the pandemic hit. The first thing I did was go read about 1917 and, um, you know, the, the global pandemic at the time. It's like, what was it like? How did people behave? How did it play out? Because that can inform a little bit about life today. But um, the arts and crafts movement, I, I found really interesting. Um, it, it was in reaction to the industrial revolution and the idea of industrializing, of being able to mass produce a lot of things. And there's so many good things about the industrial revolution because people just had such limited access to um, essentials, uh, things like books, clothing, um, tools. Um, There were just so many things that were hard to come by because it took a lot of time and energy and resources to be able to produce those things. So they were expensive, they were scarce, and industrialization gave us more access um, and, and, and gave people access uh, who, who might not have as many means. 
the problem was that it also took away humanity from those, those objects, those things. Um, and there's something really special about the spirit of the maker in the things that we make. Um, you know, I own some things like, um, sitting next to my desk, uh, I have a handmade ax, um, that I use to chop wood, uh, because I'm still an Iowa boy at heart <laughs> and I like to chop wood. Um, but there's a guy, um, in, uh, North Carolina that hand built this and it took about three years to get this thing because it was backward because it's not industrialized his production. When I use that thing, it feels really amazing. And it's the type of object that, you know, it passes down through generations. It costs a little bit more, but it feels a whole lot more meaningful. Um, and I have a, a, a chef's knife, uh, similar story, handmade by some folks nearby. Um, and it's got a story and I love to use that. So industrial designers, architects, um, designers of lots of disciplines have known that um, the way that we make things influences the way that we feel. And the way that we feel um, influences our behaviors. Like I want to chop wood more. And when I chop wood, it's good for my body, you know? And it, it actually saves money because if I, uh, if, if I have, I had to have a tree taken out and I'm going to process that wood myself, which is a whole lot cheaper than if I have to pay someone over and over to, to bring me chopped wood. Um, I, I like the idea of the arts and crafts movement. Um, and uh, I see a parallel in design in general. These were people who wanted to make things that were transgenerational, make things that uh, made living life beautiful, made us feel connected to our land, made us feel connected to each other, our community. Um, and that feels, again, to, to bring our conversation full circle, that idea of a revolution, that revolutions are not about single individuals. They're about multiple individuals coming together under the same ethos. Um, and, and, and having good intention and, and wanting to do something that's meaningful. Um, I think that the arts and crafts movement has something to teach us uh, about that, uh, that ethos that we could bring to our design work in the 21st century. Thanks. Uh, thinking about what you, you, you take forward, that's just making me think about one of the other big things we talk about on the podcast is advice and uh, at a meta level, stealing from Austin Cleon, but from his steal like an artist, but is mm. usually when we give advice, you know, he, he frames it as we're talking to our younger self. Uh, but themes that have emerged here are also uh, sometimes that we've had a mentor or somebody in our life that gave us advice that is, is so strong that we continue to unpack it, even like that becomes more profound. Uh, and so I was just curious, maybe on either good advice that you've received, uh, you know, in your career or growing up, mm -hmm. and then also advice that you might give to uh, designers, creatives, and craftspeople. Um, of course, I've received a lot of good advice in my lifetime, but it, it's part part of who I am. But uh, it's not easily kind of surfaced. But I guess um, I want to speak to the Iowa experience. Yeah. Um, you know, we often hear our state described as like the flyover state, um, not, not a destination. And, um, 
you know, it's hard not to take that as like a slight on, on us and who we are. Um, you know, a couple things that Iowa gave me, um, strong sense of humility, um, which I think is, um, it's a powerful thing because a humble mind is a learning mind. Yeah. Um, and humility gave me a lot of curiosity and, um, also ambition. Um, and, and this, this sounds like a, a negative towards the Iowa experience, but I don't see it as such, but, um, there's kind of a cultural void, um, that I experienced in small town, Iowa, when you're in a town of 8,000 people. And I knew there was a bigger world out there and I wanted more of it and I didn't have access to it. Um, the web was not, uh, was not a thing for a long time. And then when it was, I was in, in college and, um, I, I didn't quite understand what it was bringing me. But I remember going to the University of Iowa and that was essentially like seeing the web for the first time, which was where I saw the web for the first time, uh, incidentally. Um, so that, you know, Iowa gave me an ambition for more, like there's more out here um, that I want to reach out to and connect with. But as I get older, I find I um, subconsciously return to those Iowa roots not literally going back to the state because I don't live in the state, but, um, you know, I grow a lot of my own food um, and that feels real and connects me to uh, the, the land and, and that experience. Um, I feed my family and that feels meaningful. Um, I, I raise chickens um, and I live in the middle of, of a city here in Athens, Georgia. It's another college town. Right. Um, but the, that humility and the learning mind, um, the uh, lack of abstraction, which I really appreciate about the Iowa experience of like um, in, in a lot of places, and especially in large cities, so much is abstracted. Like who makes my food? Where does my food come from? Who does my laundry? Um, you know, there's services for everything. And so you can focus on a very narrow piece of existence. Um, and in Iowa, the experience I got, especially from parents raised in Iowa, there's no abstractions. Like this is, this is how we hunt and this is how we put food in the freezer and this is how we grow our food and process our food. Um, that's real. That is so real. And it remains real um, many decades later uh, in, in my life. So uh, thankful Thanks. for that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And as you were talking about that too, even like you said the notion of growing your food or I mean, from a design perspective is also you're seeing other ecosystems at work, right? Other yeah. elements of interconnectivity that, that yeah. you can apply. And I want to touch upon, you, you were talking about humility and, uh, and kind of a, a learning mind. And I really appreciate that because I, I feel like one of the things that is changing about the business world today from when I started is also the notion of vulnerability. Yeah. Um, yeah. And early in my career, you know, one of the best things I think you can say as a designer is I don't know, mm -hmm. but I'm going to find out, right. It's not that you're not giving up. It's just, I, I don't want to, I don't want to claim I have the answer right now. Right. Mm -hmm. I need to dig into it. But uh, early in my career, if you said, I don't know, it would be like, well, what are we paying you for? Right. Yeah. But yeah. I'm also seeing more levels of vulnerability and that you, it, it actually takes more to stand up and say, I don't know. And yep. a, a, mini full a mini circle for us is uh, I use one of your quotes uh, with my design teams. And one is, mm. uh, guesses make messes. And <laughs> That's right. 
let's make sure we understand this. What, you know, what's going on, what's the context, right? Both internally and externally. What are, what are our customers or users? What are their goals, needs? What are they trying to do? What's mm-hmm. that context? What gets in the way? And then also how might we deliver that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and using an, actually an MVP model too, is like, what are the mm-hmm. smallest experiments we can do to test that? But that's where I think, uh, I hope that a shift in vulnerability that I've been seeing in business over the past few years, I'm, I'm hoping that, as you said, the movement we're in right now, I hope more vulnerability and empathy becomes a greater yeah. currency uh, to the broader world. I think it, it can and will be if we give people an opportunity to clarify. So one thing I think we need to be conscious of is um, there are people who are vulnerable or who, who make mistakes and say dumb things. And um, there's kind of a, a thing going on right now where we want to say you're, you're a bad person for saying that. Um, and in many circumstances, I think it's time, it's time to call people out and it's time to hold people accountable. But we also have the opportunity to um, help people, instead of writing them off as like, you know, you're a lost cause, uh, give them the opportunity to clarify. what do you mean by that? Could you, could you say some more about that? Um, because as that shifts them from certainty and, and assertiveness to reflection, and when we can reflect, we have that opportunity. Our, our, our vulnerability is present. Um, we have that opportunity to change perspectives, rethink, and re- realize, uh, actually, I don't know what I meant by that. It, that didn't make any sense. Um, and then that, if, if people can do that and survive and not feel ravaged by someone who's correcting them, um, it's easier to be vulnerable the next time. And we have a different type of relationship together. Yeah, that's in, and kind of going back to uh, earlier in our conversation, we were talking about critique, right? And, and the mm-hmm. discussion of the idea yeah. and uh, your frame of what almost the work, what's the job of the work to do? And that it, it's not necessarily a shortcoming of the individual. And uh, a lot of work I do with teams, that's one of the, is how do we get into uh, a discussion and debate of ideas? And, and frankly, we just try to say, it, it's all right to beat the hell out of an idea, mm-hmm. not beat the hell out of each other, right? That's and, right. Because when a team is is really uh, on target and they believe in each other and are there to support each other, you can look at it from, is this the best idea? Is this the yeah. idea we want going out? How might we make this better? And when you can ask those questions honestly, right, and in a reflective way, yeah. I, I, that's when I see really powerful teamwork. And I, I think one of that is, uh, I liked how you, you were talking about too, is giving people opportunity to reflect because yeah. in some of this, it's like, how, how much of my experience do I need to own myself? And then yep. how much can I just be open and assume positive intent with, with my peers or teammates as well? So that it yeah. isn't just, I heard this one word and I shut down. It's, yep. let's dig in. Or as a friend of mine said, let, you know, let's, let's rumble with that for a little bit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So uh, any advice that you have for young, young creatives or uh, good, good lessons that you like to share when you're from a, wearing your design education hat? Um, yeah, diversity of experience, I think, is a really great way to um, discover uh, what's possible. Um, I think young people are too often badgered into uh, being certain about their career pathway 
let's be honest, young people, if you go ask your parents, uh, generations who preceded you, um, if you ask them about their career pathway, most of them, there's, there's a lot of twists and turns along the way because life is unexpected. So, uh, giving yourself the opportunity to try a lot of things and experiment, um, and don't, don't feel like, you know, you go to school and you get an education and you learn to think, don't feel like that degree that you have, that you have to remain in that discipline. There's opportunity to, uh, explore different things. And what you learned is not lost. It's applicable to other things too. You know, it's, it's, uh, broadens your experience and your perspective. Um, so I think that's a, that's a good thing for people to keep in mind. Thanks. Yeah. I reflecting in my own life when I started at the university of Iowa as an undergrad, I was a double major, uh, in broadcast and film and pre-dentistry. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. So, so you can you can see how that naturally leads into web design and experience design, right? There you go. But yeah, there it was go. wasn't sure one wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go. But as you talked, like the the nature of broadcast and film, which I didn't even stick with either, right? Because I was storytelling, right? Yeah, but storytelling, and we were it was we were pushed on audience centered analysis. We were pushed on framing yep. and and bigger projects, storyboarding. So even like yep. early prototypes, can we even make this work and how yeah. those do translate. And that is, I think one of the things that I try to tell young designers is it, it, look at other experiences and how you might apply those because those are more tools than that you have in the toolkit. They're not always right, but the more that you can expand that perspective, I think yeah. the more chance that you have at, at really understanding, let alone solving a problem. That's right. Great thinkers, the, the thinkers that we admire the most in history, they don't have a straight line. They, <laughs> they, don't, they don't dig into just one thing. They dig into all the things. And Aaron, I, uh, as we're kind of coming to our time, I just wanted to check in with you. Are there any topics that uh, we didn't cover that you, you thought we, we might when we sat down for our conversation? I don't think so. I think we, we hit some good ones. Thanks. And from a, almost from a virtual book tour perspective, do you mind sharing where uh, people might be able to get a hold of uh, your book and some of your other work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can get the book from a bookapart.com. The book's called Designing for Emotion, the second edition. Um, also, uh, I'm doing something kind of fun. I'm doing a book club. Um, so if you are a, uh, you know, running a design team, um, you're at a company and the ideas that we talked about today are interesting and you feel like this would be a good conversation within your team, um, doing a book club where you can buy the book for your team. Uh, there's a discussion guide and then I'll join you for a conversation and uh, we can talk. And it's a great way to learn remotely together. Uh, we're not going to conferences, uh, you know, we're staying at home. So this is a great way to learn. Even if we were going to conferences, it's a great way to learn together. So um, that's uh, also applicable to uh, college classes too. That's a, a fun thing to do. And then you can learn more about me at uh, AaronWalter.com. It's two A's and two R's because my dad misspelled my name at the hospital in Iowa. So uh, double A, double R. Aaron, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me on the podcast. I've, I've appreciated your work uh, for quite some time. So it's, it's an honor for me to, to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to connect my Iowa roots. 